0: listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through icdl.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Welcome back listeners, I'm Daria Brown, this is Affect Autism, and this is part two. We had a Praxis podcast last time with Joanne Fleckenstein and Mike Fields in Atlanta, and this is our Q&A part two, where we are going to dive in to some more details. So welcome back, guys. Thanks. Thank you. So in the last episode, we talked about what Praxis is. Joanne talked about how she tests a client's motor planning, using testing uh, different affect states and using games to see in real time how a child does everything they need to do to figure stuff out. We talked about how praxis is the thinking part, not the memory part, which means that praxis is unique and that once you show someone idea an idea and they repeat it, they're now working from memory, which is a different part of the brain. So I asked, okay, how do we teach? How to find a new way? How do we teach a child to be flexible? How do we teach them to repair? And Mike pointed out, you can harness curiosity and anticipation, but you cannot teach someone praxis. You cannot make someone be curious. So we join them in their interests because those are the things they'll most be curious about, especially when they're frustrated. And especially if they're connected in a relationship, you'll have greater success. So We can support that curiosity to be better thinkers and not just doers. And we talked about um, how we create opportunities for them to be curious. And also how important it is, Joanne added, if you can't turn ideas around in your mind, because if there's no negotiation or flexibility, you'll be constricted at the fourth functional emotional developmental capacity in the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR floor time, and everything builds on this foundation. This episode is like a and a for parents, so as, as the parent, and of course both of you are parents as well, of neurodivergent children, how parents feel. So I think Mike mentioned this, or one of you mentioned it last time. We feel, we're the ones that feel, oh no, if they fail... And it's our anxiety that gets in the way and we want to solve everything for our children. You took away the opportunity from the child to figure it out themselves and solve something themselves. And that's why in floor time, we wait, we watch, we wonder, follow their interests. We we use anticipation and affect to build that curiosity up and and try and facilitate them solving um, problems. And so... I guess where I wanted to start was pointing out that ICDL, the International Council on Development and Learning, most recent news flash was about Praxis, and it was from occupational therapist Julie Hogg who said, to support ideation, we can wonder and follow the child's lead and support the expanding of thought. To support organization, we create opportunities for reciprocity, which then leads towards extended sequences and expands into our environment and our actions. And then to support initiation, we create an environment with our affect and our awareness that gives the gift of initiation back to our clients. To support execution, we join model, and assist to create opportunities for and support the success of the development of new skills. And finally, to support feedback, we use our relationship and to support regulation as we work together to problem solve. If any listeners are in the UK, you can look up Julie Hogg on the DIR directory, directory (laughs) at ICDL under the parents tab. So, I mean, she... She listed ideation, organization, initiation, execution, and feedback. And the thing that jumped out to me as a parent is that initiation, she says, give the gift of initiation back to our clients. And that's what I was talking about where I say we always want to solve everything for our children, mostly because we feel like we're walking on eggshells if they're about to melt down, if something doesn't go their way. So we want to solve everything for them. But We need to sit back and wait and let them initiate the interaction with us. So should we start there?
1: I think that's a really good place to start. There's this misconception that we have as parents, right? Especially after a diagnosis or once the parent realizes that that some things that we're veering off the developmental course, we think, oh, we've got to get them to catch up. We've got to get them to catch up. And so in our own discomfort and fear, right? We think, oh, they don't know that. We better teach them. And in doing so we robbed them of the opportunity of learning to learn. Um, I had a very unique experience in homeschooling my children for six months. And um, it happened to coincide with, with COVID. The biggest challenge I saw for both of my children, again, my oldest Andy is, is autistic and has ADHD and my, um, my youngest is allistic. Can you define allistic? Allistic, allistic is non-autistic. And I get them home and start homeschooling and realized that neither knew how to learn. They hadn't learned how to learn. They hadn't developed the capacity to ask the questions, right? So if, if we were doing um, some of our homeschool curriculum and they didn't know the answer, their solution was to say, I don't know the answer. You have to teach me there wasn't an ability to say, mm, maybe I could look it up here. There was no wondering, there was no curiosity about what other source. Um, and I think that's honestly the biggest gift that they got from homeschooling was they learned how to learn because we sat in our own discomfort in seeing our children struggle and we supported them as they sat in their discomfort of not knowing the answer. So we had to sit and watch them not know the answer and struggle and be uncomfortable and, and sat beside them, not um, leaving them dangling on the hook, but sitting with them and trying to figure out, okay, what else could we try? Um, and in supporting them, they both developed the capacity to to make a learning plan, to figure out how to get the information that they're looking for.
2: I think that gets to the heart of Praxis, Two, because what we're doing when we're feeling uncomfortable, that fear is not being able to predict what's next. And that's what Praxis helps us do. It helps us recognize patterns. And so when we recognize a pattern, our brains say that that's safe, it's okay. And when there's something that we don't recognize... Our brains are supposed to alert to that in case it's dangerous so that we can protect ourselves. But I I think that kind of gets to the heart of it. We're having that problem of we're unable to predict what's going to happen. And so we're trying to escape that discomfort like it's a bad thing. Um, One of the things from a mental health perspective that's really important to me is hope. And even when you're uncomfortable, even when you're afraid, um, nobody's perfect. We're all going to fail. Bad stuff happens. Right. And so if we can harness that in this fear, there's potential. And the fear is supposed to motivate us to do something. So we, it's an adaptive response or it can be we in our own discomfort, we can rob the potential from that moment. Experience is the best teacher, but they're expensive. Um, But there's no better way to learn something than to experience it for yourself. Affect is the foundation for everything, being able to feel safe and connected. And Having that experience yourself is so much uh, of a richer, more educational experience. There's a lot more growth, a lot more potential in experiencing it for yourself. So that's what we talk about in floor time, the just right challenge. We want somebody to bump into this discomfort and not knowing what to do, not knowing how it's going to turn out. And then the idea is that the primary caregiver, parent, therapist, teacher, whoever, somebody there, it's like, this is scary. You're not alone. We we're going to figure out something to do here. And you can't always solve the problem, but if you can stay connected and be in that feeling, be in that moment, there's so much potential and, uh, Staying there, trying to coach people, convince people, don't run from that. Hang out in that and um and it's magic
0: you said that when parents are faced with something we if praxis ourselves we're we're worried because we can't predict what's going to happen. So that's the praxis piece, but I'm thinking but we can predict what's going to happen. We can predict that our child's going to melt down and it's going to be a disaster.
1: Mm. So
0: we're sort of stuck. We focus so much on
1: regulation and so much on modulation um, that we forget that we will become dysregulated and dysregulation is not a bad thing that we need a little bit of this tension to move forward Um, a lot of the coaching I'm doing with parents is, um, it's, we would never purposefully dysregulate a child. Do not get me wrong. I definitely don't want my child to suffer unnecessarily, but I also know that in order to live in the world, that there has to be just a little bit of that stretch there. So as the parent, I'm going to, um, Try and see. Can can we stretch? Can we be uncomfortable? Um. Often this is the point at which I will um, make a referral to to mental health. Right to sit in an emotion, to sit in um, an uncomfortable emotion, to sit in frustration. Um. Because if I'm going to have, if there's going to be any block towards progress in occupational therapy, a lot of times it's going to be an emotional block. Right. That. Man, we could get really, really far moving forward in praxis if this individual could be comfortable being emotionally uncomfortable, be okay being in the
0: unpredictable. A parent asked how best to support their child who is a young adult who has problems with idea formation. Maybe they have an idea, but they just can't express it. So how best to help them and support them? Maybe they're having trouble visualizing their idea. How do we support that? Um, I'm I'm thinking about you sitting there with your kids and, and giving us concrete um, ideas, even though we did mention what to do, you know, sit in the moment. But how is what parents always want to know? How do I do that? And it's going to vary from child to child.
1: I think the first thing for how is we need to get our own therapy we need to get our own therapy. We can, um, raising a neurodivergent child is amazing and it is such a joy and it is such a gift. Um, it is, uh, I would not have it any other way. It is also different than the lived experience of most of my friends, um, of, you know, many of my, of of acquaintances, neighbors, um, And I think that one of the challenges is we need to understand ourselves, our own thinking, our own limitations, our own constrictions in our capacities um, so that we are totally available to support our children without tapping out. So I think understanding ourselves first and foremost is the most powerful thing we can do for our child Uh, it can feel a little selfish to focus on us um, but it's it's really the best way to move forward
0: and i'll refer people to the podcast a few weeks ago with gabriella um, who talked about parenting styles and the different types of capacities that you get with each parenting style because i certainly recognized myself in all three styles and how you can move back and forth to being more directive and authoritarian when you're under stress, or the other way of being way too permissive when you're under stress, and how to get to more of that balanced authoritative style, uh, that will be elaborated on in a future podcast with podcast with Colette Ryan, who is working on parent self-efficacy for her PhD dissertation. So we're, we're going to explore that more.
2: Yeah, so a couple of things that have come up. That I wanted to hit on real quick. Fortunately, eh, um, the world makes sure that we run into problems. Right. And so with floor time, what we're doing is not like Joanne said, we're not creating those things, but when they come up and they're gonna. My son got a bug bite on his foot the other day. How can we take advantage of those opportunities, supporting somebody like John saying has to start with me. Floor time isn't about changing whoever the the client is. Who, um, I like to say whoever we're serving. Um, it's not about changing that individual. It's about changing me to be able to support them, so they can have those opportunities, so they can be safe and connected. In those experiences so they can struggle so they can fail so they can succeed Uh, to be there to let them have those opportunities and not steal them for myself.
0: And everybody may not be able to afford therapy or a counselor or a coach, but you can find other parents, you can come to ICDL's parent support group that I facilitate every Monday, you can Come and you can meet up with a friend or a trusted family member just to have somewhere um, with a person that you have a good relationship with you trust that you can, you know, get feedback from. I think you know, just having that not feeling alone is so helpful. So this parent who's saying, How do I support my child with idea formation? Maybe they just can't express it, or maybe they're having trouble with visualization. What is that journey look like for them, Joan? So when a lot
1: of times when I work with a kid who struggles to come up with an idea, and this is where you need a therapist to help you dig in to figure out why, why ideation is hard. Is it that they don't have a mind's eye for ideas? Is it that um, they are too dysregulated feeling too uncomfortable in their own skin for ideas to be available and if we just get them comfortable in their skin then ideas will be available you have to really take out the why but if it's because they don't have um, the ability to to come up with that mental um, idea right so these are the kids who their ideas are based on what they can see or what they can hear Those are the kids who see the thing, play with it. See the thing, play with it. See the thing, play with it. In those situations, I might have clear the room as much as I can of clutter. I might put as many things as I can behind closed doors or up on a high shelf. And I might put out two or three options for an activity. Now, if the child rejects all three of those activities, then we're going to choose something else right? We're going to make another plan. But by limiting it, we give them what they can handle. So we start with two. If that's easy, great. Then we offer three things, not, not, um, not ideas that we're telling them, but actual concrete things, right? Um, because again, if we don't have strong capacity five, we have a kid who's still very concrete, then we need to have the actual items, there right so we start from there with ideation um and and we can use pictures if we need to for the kids who can't have ideas but they can't communicate them um finding a really good um speech language pathologist who can help you find the why um if you have to guess at the why then um you know we we have to figure out is it that the ideas are in their brain but they can't organize them language praxis wise to get them out? Is it that they're just not coming up with the ideas? Um, I, I, it's still a bit of a non-answer, right? Because without the why it's hard to know, but you can't go wrong by, by offering some options, right? To start that ideation going um, and really working at capacity one, two, and three to expand communication, which is an expansion of ideas, right? If I'm playing peekaboo-ish type games with you, and then I decide to go over to the side, right? I've expanded on that idea. So working at one, two, and three, we're naturally gonna see some pieces of four, which is where that praxis explosion happens, um, start to just develop.
2: And I think one of the keys to, so, so here's where there's not a an answer. I mean, it would be lovely if there was a, here is what to do to solve that problem. I'm going to go back to the model, going back to that and using that as a, where am I and, and where do I go? In the moment when something's happening, when you're on the verge of a meltdown, really all you can do is white knuckle, hang on and try and make it through. But with floor time, we can come back around. What was that situation? How can we kind of recreate that? How can we experience it using your natural affinities? What do you like and what you're good at? And so if we can join a child playing, not just a child, anybody, if we can join someone in what they're interested in, when we get those curveballs. oh, this happened. I know that it could go this way. I understand this is how the person experiences the world. So let's do this together or let's explore that. And then you can come back and when they have the capacity, talk about it later or plan for it. Um, If this comes up, what can we do? And so that's creating opportunities for that FADC 5, for that symbolic problem solving, that abstract problem solving, the emotional piece of it to figure out what can we do? And then you try it. Did that work? Did it not work? How do we do that again? So always come back to the model and we always try to lead with what somebody is interested in that's going to naturally make them more resilient and it's going to provide that curiosity for us so i'm
0: thinking artists. i'm thinking about an example dr tippy gave where he would bring somebody to the grocery store with a grocery list what do we do So I'm thinking, I bring my son to Toys R Us because he wants to go get Mario Lego. And I'm like, okay, that's not going to work because he already knows where the Lego is. He'll go straight there and do it. But with a younger child, maybe, oh, we want to get it. We're we're at a new store. Maybe we went to Mastermind Toys instead of Toys R Us uh, or Target or some other new store in the US or whatever. And you just kind of get to the entrance and you're like, hmm, and you look around and you wait. And Dr. Tippy's given a number of examples that they used at the Rebecca School where they would have field trip and plan it, and they would go outside and they would stand on the corner and just wait. And eventually someone would say, aren't we going to cross the street? Oh yeah. And then next time the the light is red and then it turns green and they just stand there and turns red again. And then it turns green and then it turns red. Wait, aren't we going to go? That kind of thing. So it, is that something that you would... I mean, it depends on the child and the age and all of those other things, too. But is that the type of opportunity? Absolutely.
2: I did that with my family. Oh, yeah. Three days ago. We (laughs) were going to go somewhere. My son had the keys. He brought the keys down to the car. I came down to the car. I was going to drive, sat down. I just sat there. Everybody was quiet. (laughs) started talking about, oh, there's neighbors walking a dog. And so everybody was engaged. I just sat there. Eventually somebody said, aren't we going to go? Sure. I don't have the keys. Oh, well, who has the keys? And that was all I added to it was I don't have the keys. And then they handed me the keys and we we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And somebody so you're chast- giving me an idea. Me. Yeah. Somebody chastised me and said, you know, communication helps. And I said, sometimes you're working on communication. Sometimes you're working on ideation. <laughs>
0: so so I'm, I'm thinking waiting
2: for initiation.
0: At some point, one day I might be ready early for school, even though usually we're running late. I can just do that. I can go outside and stand on the driveway next to the car and just stand there. Well, and And if it
1: doesn't work, if your kid or your, your loved one becomes dysregulated,
0: then you know they're not ready for that step. It's too much. Yeah. Dr. Tippy says, put on the gas and break at the same time. You want to or Jackie Bartel and Sanjay said the rubber band, you stretch it, but you don't want to (laughs) break. Absolutely. And it,
1: it just, it gives you good information, right? That, okay, that was one step too far. How can I pull back a little bit? How can I offer an opportunity? That's not as
2: overwhelming. And how do we find boundaries? Usually when we crash through them. (laughs) So if you go too far, that's okay. Don't be limited by fear of making a mistake because making the mistake is a valuable lesson. I did that with a kid that I was working with right before this meeting. I wanted to see, I'd seen one side of his ability to process stuff. And so I'm like, well, I'm gonna go the other way this time and do nothing. Um, And he got frustrated and shut down. And so I said, I think I know what happened there. You were working really hard. You tried, you got stuck and you needed me and I didn't help. I'm, I messed up, but now I know. And so I'm going to try not to do that again. So I'm normalizing failure, but also explaining to the kid that, Hey, I'm on your side. I want to do this. And I screwed up, but you taught me something and now I'm going to be better at it. Um, so yeah, it can, it can go the other way. And if we, if I, if I'm afraid of making that mistake, then I'm never going to find where the boundary is. I'm never going to find the potential.
0: You're listening to affect autism. And for the rest of this podcast, you will hear a recording from ICDL's parent support meetings that I facilitate every Monday, where Joanne Fleckenstein was our guest and parents asked questions about Praxis. The first question we have here is, our son has motor planning difficulties, but I always get confused on what is specifically a praxis issue, how you can improve it, and how you can measure progress compared with, say, handwriting or potty training, etc. Not doing something could be a praxis issue too, or could it be anxiety, and how do you tease out the cause? It's a great question.
1: Motor planning is a piece of praxis when it involves motor skills. So when we're doing, when we're using praxis for a motor idea, I want to get from this location to that location and I have to figure out how to get over or under, right? There's motor planning as a part of that. So motor planning is a piece of praxis when it's, involving actual motor skills right um, a lot of times when i have a child or any client an adult client who's struggling with praxis we start in the motor because that's how it develops right um, praxis develops with reflexes right And all these babies born with primitive reflexes that they're born with and that's how they move initially and they gradually shift from moving on reflex to moving intentionally. And then we get motor planning, right? So we take people back to motor skills so that we can lay the neurological groundwork for Praxis. It's easier for the provider to see Praxis when it's motor. It's easier for the parent to see Praxis when it's motor. So just this morning, I started a new client whose major area of concern is Praxis and we played The Floor is Lava. So you have to get from one location to another location without touching the floor. I gave him three objects. And he struggled to come up with a plan when those three objects were not um, enough to get him easily from one side to the next. Um, Not doing something could be a praxis issue. Inaction can be a praxis issue. So with Praxis, we think of um, having an idea, making a plan, executing the plan and getting feedback on whether that plan worked. We can get stuck that if our execution didn't work and we got feedback that our execution didn't work, then we just abandon our idea or we get stuck or frozen um, in in that situation. So we do have kids who will, Suffer in silence, um, where they don't take out the trash because they never um, they didn't know who to even ask or how to even start or initiate asking where the trash should be taken to. So when you're thinking of praxis, it's how we do everything that we have not practiced. Right. So it's everything novel, it's everything different, it's everything that is not the way you expect, which is one of the reasons we can't really use an obstacle course to measure praxis consistently, because if we have the same obstacle course, the kid does it a few times, come back to do the exact same obstacle course, there's no praxis there. The child has already practiced the motor plan. So praxis is how we navigate anything new, um, a plan that is unexpected, a change. So when we, um, I will work on, I will start from a motor perspective and make that as complex as I can because I understand that it will support the wiring for social praxis, right? Um, I'm having this problem. I need to ask for help, but I just don't even know how to go, go about that. I um, So it, Praxis is one of those um, individual differences that runs through all of development, all from the most motor, basic motor to the most complex um, social emotional thinking, right? It's part of how we turn ideas around in our head. It's it's implicated in executive function. Um and it is this big umbrella term because it is how we do all of the things so um i might see a child who can run and jump and climb but if we take them to a different park or if there's some unexpected um piece to their day then they can't function right i've had um and it's it's actually fascinating some of our um dyspraxic clients so clients with the diagnosis of dyspraxia, not necessarily autism, um, have been championship gymnasts, um, nationally ranked tennis players, uh, nationally ranked soccer players. The stuff that they're very good at are actors. We've gotten a fair few child actors who are dyspraxic. Um, The things that they are really good at, that they know how to do, they are excellent at. But if you give them any kind of change or any novel sequence, whether it's motor or, or social emotional, they don't do well. So the child actors do beautifully because they have lines to read, right? It's all scripted and this is how the character feels. But they're not able to, if, if they're given step-by-step instructions, they're able to do it, but they cannot make their own instructions. Um, An adult who I was working with, um, the mom said, I just don't understand it because she can follow a list. And I said, yes, but she can't make her own list. So it's the ability to understand the sequencing, right? I'm gonna do this before I do this, and then I do that. Actually, a lot of what we know about praxis and how it works is from people who've had strokes in areas of the brain that praxis, um, where praxis is implicated, right? So those areas of the brain that that house um, components of
0: praxis. Is it a praxis issue if your son uses your hand to get something? However, I've seen him get things himself.
1: You know, that is such a beautiful early praxis, like where he is beginning to realize that he does need your assistance, right? He's essentially using your hand as a tool Right, he knows what he needs, what he wants. He needs um, support to get it there. He knows that he cannot reach it, and so he is problem solving himself. Now, it's not shared social problem solving because there's no social piece to it um, necessarily. But he is problem solving. So yes, he he is using praxis. Now, it might be that. He saw you do that thing one time, or reach for that um, object, and he knows that you can reach it. And he has put together the pieces that he can use that as a sequence to get what he's looking for.
0: Okay, does praxis affect speech? And if yes, how?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, there is a diagnosis called apraxia of speech, which means you do not have praxis for your speech. Um, it's for uh, it's for children, uh, particularly children, who struggle to coordinate the muscles of their mouth to say something on command. There are some kids that if you ask them to say the word, no, they cannot say it. But if they are in a situation where emotionally, the no just comes out, then they are able to say it. Um, and. For language, right, you can have challenges with your praxis of language. What that tends to look like is um, not being able to repair communication. Um, I will have clients who use the exact same words and expect me to understand after I've not understood it the first time, right? That that feedback loop, They recognize that I didn't understand, but they're not able to change their sentence structure or the words they're using so that I understand better. Um, So yes, it absolutely does affect speech. Um, And often the kids who I work with who struggle with praxis from a motor standpoint will also
0: struggle with speech and language. So my son does this. A lot of parents in the support group have brought this up before too. Our kids ask the same questions over and over and over again. We had speech and language therapist, Bridget Palmer, tell us that Temple Grandin has spoken publicly about how she asked her mother the same questions over and over because she loved hearing her mother's response. And my son is stuck in this loop of, I'd say, at least six months, if not a year now. Who's your favorite Mario character? Who's your favorite this? And, And then I'll say, I'll answer. And then two minutes later... Who's your favorite Mario character? I just told you, Toad. Who's your favorite blah, blah, blah. What, you forgot already? Toad, who's your favorite? And he just keeps repeating it over and over and over. Is that praxis? Or the other thing, what are we doing after school? What's after school? What's after school? First we come home, we'll have dinner, then we'll play board game, then we'll have bath, then we'll do bed. What's after school? I just told you. (laughs) Then on the way to school. What's after school? You forgot already? On and on and on. So I see that a lot of times,
1: and that's an anxiety response, right? Um, there is some really great information um, and some literature coming out um, on the link between, and it's something that I've been talking a lot with uh, Kathy Platzman and Mike Fields about, um, and the whole floor time Atlanta crew here um, are is the connection between dyspraxia and anxiety. And I imagine it has to be so frustrating for someone who struggles with praxis when their idea does not go as planned, because they're not able to make a plan B, right They're not able to change their how things go. Um, they can't just rebound and and come up with a new idea, so um, I imagine that there's a lot of anxiety and and energy spent on making sure that everything is as predictable as possible. Um, so is it? It's an anxiety response, but I wonder if it's an anxiety
0: response due to lack of praxis. Okay, if so that's that, why that you pattern have- is there. You would need more information to know. Yeah. And, and I can tell you that, yes, my son is dyspraxic. So um, in some other cases, it might be something different. But in my son's case, it might be a combination of anxiety and uh, not knowing how else to connect because I want to keep talking to mama, but I can't really think of what else to say.
1: Well, and that in and of itself is praxis, right? Because if you if you can't come up with a new way to interact, a novel way to interact, then you're just going to keep doing the same thing. Right. And I'll have a lot of kids who um, I might miss some of the praxis challenges initially because they come to the clinic and they recognize things that they, the cars or our towers and they do that same activity over and over again. And then you know by the third session they've still not tried anything new. Right. Um, and when I encourage something new or different then I see that look of distress.
0: Okay, Um, someone asked for a clarification about your answer earlier. Are you talking about primitive reflex integration for laying the groundwork beforehand for praxis?
1: Such a great question. So um, it really depends on the kid and it depends on what they can tolerate, right? Um, So clinically, um, it, it really depends hundred percent on the kid I have in front of me. If the kid I have in front of me can tolerate some primitive reflex integration, uh, this just happened with a a kid earlier today. Um, He he just can't, he can't tolerate um, doing any of the exercises. Um, It's too stressful for him. Um, So we integrate the reflexes in a more functional way. We offer more crawling and in other activities that will naturally integrate the reflexes. Um, We follow what developed the pattern of development um, and and offer those activities as much as possible. Um, But in terms of laying the groundwork, it's offering opportunities for the child to sit in not knowing, to sit in in trying to find another plan, uh, sitting beside them in their discomfort um, while they try and struggle to figure out a different way. Um, but really we want to offer them the opportunity to um, think
0: through the activity,
1: um, if that makes sense.
0: Dr. Tippy talked about doing this with some kids who are you know, in the 13 year old range, bringing them to the grocery store and saying, here's our list. You know, shrugging his hands, what do we do? And Joanne's talking about that opportunity for the child to think and figure it out. Can potty training be a praxis issue? I think you're going to say yes.
1: Yeah, it can. With potty training, there it, you know, it it's not initially yes, right? So initially, it can be that it's all new sequences. It's it's trying to get your um, your uh, pelvic floor to relax right but there's enough practice built in there that if you've been practicing um using the toilet you've been consistent same toilet same setup you know roughly same timing all of that um and it, you're still struggling that could be more pelvic floor or interoception that internal body sense um, and and just the threshold being different. Um, So again, anytime something is practiced, it does not involve praxis. So for kids who struggle with praxis, um, a lot of times the necessary things that we have to do and have to get done, we just practice them uh, and try and keep things as consistent as possible for the essentials, right? So for getting dressed, for brushing teeth, for going to the toilet, um, for getting a snack, things like that, so that there's predictability. Um, and then we use other times, non-essentials, for opportunities to develop praxis.
0: Are dyspraxia and developmental coordination disorder, DCD, the same thing, or are there nuances between the two, including different, differing diagnostic criteria?
1: To my understanding, they're essentially the same thing, and it's more an, an, an effect of um, where in the world you live? So we often code it as um, other lack of coordination. Here in the United States, we use the ICD-10 um, and we code it as other lack of coordination, which is also listed as developmental coordination and also listed as dyspraxia. Well, one of
3: our situation is like my son asked us to take, take, take him to the basketball, which is we are living in an apartment and basketball court is just downstairs. Once we get there, he sees the door and he plays with the door opening and closing the door and he forgets about basketball. We try to remind him, we came to play basketball. Are we going to play basketball? He says, no. After two, three minutes, are you sure? And he says, yes. And then, okay, we are not going to play with the doors. We are going to, what, what are we going to do? He says, go back home. The moment we enter the house, the next immediate thing that he says is, Let's go and play basketball. Right? He forgets the conversation we had totally that we had. No, like, yeah, he's forgetting the plan, what we're going to Yeah, do. like, uh, yeah, I think this is also kind of praxis. Mm-hmm. And what's your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I wonder, and of course, I, I, I don't know your child, right? But I wonder if basketball to him means I want to play with the doors.
3: He sees other kids playing basketball from our apartment. He likes connecting. So with he wants to play basketball for sure. But when he goes yeah. down, he's the door.
1: Yes. Yeah, so he is. So he found something more fun along the way, forgets his plan because he gets stuck. I wonder if he might be stuck in what's called a motor loop where he really does want to go play basketball, but he just gets stuck. Stuck at the doors, right? So where he is not able to um, to get past the doors because he has to complete this this loop, this sequence, right? Almost this ritual of of opening the door, closing the door, playing with the door, and then he loses all of his energy and intention, has to go back into the apartment to reset, and then says, "Ugh." Oh, but I didn't get to play basketball. I wonder what would happen and it might be good to experiment with um, one of you going down first and opening the door. So the doors are already open so that there's no door to get past. I wonder if he will then go all the way in. Um, I also have the experience when I work with older clients and they're able to explain it to me They'll say, I really wanted to play basketball or whatever um, the activity is, but when I got in there, um, it wasn't what I expected and I just got stuck. So the idea is lovely, but the action is not as much fun.
0: Hi, so I am curious more to learn a little bit more about apraxia of speech because um, my son was diagnosed with a severe speech disorder. I have heard that word applied to him and it makes sense because he can say a few words and sometimes he will just pop out with something kind of clear and I remember teachers be like oh he said this clear as day but then he might not repeat it so I guess I think that is what partly is going on he uses sign language to communicate because it's pretty severe so how do you work on it if you're not doing you know I mean he gets speech and they kind of just play and like she vocalizes things and and stuff, and we also work on sign language, but how else do you work on that?
1: Yeah, so that is um, a more specific speech question for apraxia of speech, and there are speech language pathologists who specialize in childhood apraxia of speech. They have a specific method that can be particularly helpful. The other ways we can support our children praxis wise is to, again, lay that groundwork Um, with the motor pieces. So this particular child um, who's made so much great progress with speech lately, we are making sure that the poor kid, he is at a place where he can handle there being a problem with every idea he has, right? Um, So, you know, he wants to play with the doctor's kit, but the doctor's kit is not where we where it's supposed to be well what are we going to do now how will we fix this right so we're working on that thinking groundwork um and so that in conjunction with the prompt has been really,
0: really effective but yes you can work on practice with adults and the bottom line is creating opportunities do you want to talk a bit more about that john
1: this morning i was coaching a dad um through a game of the floor is lava with his son who is fairly dyspraxic um, and also autistic. And dad really, really wanted to give him the answer. Now we knew we could see because we we just could, right? I gave him three objects to, to put on the floor to get from a crash cushion to a tower. And of course, in my mind, if you only have three objects and they don't get you far enough, if the distance is too far, then you would pick up the one behind you and put it in front of you and pick up the one behind you and put it in front of you. And we, I was trying to help dad circle that without specifically saying it. And it was really hard for him. It was really hard for dad because he wanted to just teach him, right? Well, let me teach you. Um, And, and inadvertently he did teach the child. Then the child figured it out. So then my only option, because that opportunity was lost, was to have the child go backwards from the tower to the crash cushion, right? And um, and that is, we saw the challenge again. He really had to think through, well, I don't have enough space, or I, I don't have enough objects to get me through this space, right? And he did finally get that idea um, but what we wanna do is not rob our kids of that opportunity. I will say another caveat here. We, as the grown-ups, have to be available for the challenge of sitting with our children in that frustration, um, in that discomfort of not knowing. Um, if we are not available, it is not the time. Trying to get out of the door in the morning when you're already late, not the time, right? I like to call this weekend work or, or when you have the time, work. Um, so when you have the opportunity, when you as the parent have the bandwidth, because I know I don't have the bandwidth many days as a parent, then you're going to sit in the wait. You're going to sit with them. You can give them information. So the information I gave this child was, you know, you're Right you would need more than three of these to get across. You are right. Huh, how in the world are you gonna make this work? There's gotta be a way, right? So I'm telling him that there's a way. I'm telling him that yes, he is right. It is challenging, right? That, that it's not an obvious solution. Um, and I just sit with him and, and wonder now, if the child had begun to really become dysregulated, very frustrated, then I can jump in and say, ah, silly me, I have an idea. What if you move one of these pieces in front of you? I can give him just a little bit more um, information, just a little bit closer, a little bit closer without giving him exactly the answer. And if we need to, you know, we abandon the
0: idea and we move on to something else. So a quick summary, we it, it's really hard for us to see our kids not know how to do something, especially when they really want something. But we cannot do it for them, because that means we're robbing them of the opportunity to figure it out themselves. And unless they have opportunities to try and fail and try and fail and eventually figure something out, or at least part of it out, they're not going to ever learn. So the what they do to work on praxis is getting the kids to see if they can figure out how to do stuff and being there to co-regulate and support with them when they're sitting there frustrated but I really want that swing hung up on the hook Ah, I know how in the world are we going to get it up there Ah, and they're upset and they're crying I I want it on the hook now if they go overboard Like Dr. Tippy says, you've got your foot on the gas and they're going overboard, melting down. You might put your foot on the brake and go, I see a chair over there. And that's a hint, right? And then you see, are they gonna bring the chair to you and say, stand on the chair so you can reach it? Like, are they gonna do that? So you can break down everything into super small pieces of wondering, what can we do next? What can we do next? What can we do next? You can get your kids dressed in the morning and put their socks on their hand and just sit there and wait. And see if they figure out like, what are you doing? It doesn't go on my hand. It goes on my foot or, you know, put their pants on their head or put it on your head. Like if, if I do that, my son will be like, ah! and rip it off. Right. He gets very distressed. So on Spotify, we play his songs every day, going to school. And I, you know, that song, Bonnie Tyler from the eighties, the hero song that's in the new Mario movie. So I, I don't know the words of the first verse. So I put on the lyrics And he's like, he freaked out. He did not want to see the lyrics. He wanted to see the picture of Bonnie Tyler on the Spotify thing. So I was like, whoa, hey, hey, I just want to know what the lyrics, like he completely freaked out. So what do you do in that case, John? Yeah, in
1: that case, if we make a misstep, because we will. Right. Um, I definitely pushed my oldest a little bit too far after a disappointment um, that he faced this weekend um, and he exploded. And now that he's 14, he's got some pretty expressive words to his explosions. And and when we do take one step too far, you know, we we will um, we take one step too far with friendships, with partnerships. Right. That It's just like any other relationship we pull back, we repair. Um, And we can honor that. Maybe in that moment, they can't handle it, right? They need just some space and time. My kid needed to walk away. that was fine with me, (laughs) right? Um, And then later we can say, I noticed you really did not like that. I wish I knew why. And drop the seed of an idea that you're wondering why you're trying to think it through without demanding a response. I love to sprinkle seeds and see what grows. So I sprinkle the, I wonder, or I noticed or, huh, that's interesting, huh? And then just walk away, just drop it. There's no demand to answer it. It's just, this is
0: what I'm thinking. This is what I have in my brain. How would you work on it with an adult or like some Mm -hmm. of us parents in this group who have praxis issues like you yourself said you have, um, how do you work on it? So the
1: beauty is that my praxis has improved as I have helped other people improve their own praxis. Uh, This lovely idea of reparenting ourselves, of getting another bite at the apple in terms of the, the functional, emotional, developmental capacities, right? As we parent our children, we get the opportunity to grow in our capacities and in our developmental skills. So we do it together right um we we again you can never go wrong sticking to the road map of the developmental capacities um if the child is really playing mostly at capacity three so that back and forth communication that reciprocity then we deal with praxis at reciprocity right can you roll this ball back and forth can you hide your body under a blanket and have it completely hidden to play peekaboo Right. Can you um, with an adult who is struggling at capacity one, two and three, we see um, we're actually seeing a fair few adults with mental health um, challenges who have been in um, in psychiatric residential facilities who are coming to see us because they don't get better, Um, even with, you know, being in amazing psychiatric facilities. They don't have praxis. They don't have some of these developmental pieces um, to improve, right? To actually be, to have the capacity um, to live independently, to be successful. Um, And these are a lot of folks who did very well in life until they hit um, high school or college, I mean, um, or hit career. So we take it back to the beginning. we use a lot of compensatory strategies in adults um, where, okay, so your praxis is struggling. Um, I, myself, I love using, um, I, I don't, um, this is a, a plug that I don't get paid for. I love the, um, the therapist, Casey Davis. Um, she has some fantastic neurodivergent to-do lists. She's got great ideas um, on how to keep yourself organized. Um, and I have to use her lists to organize my day, to organize my weekend. I have opening duties and closing duties. That's one of the things we do a lot of times for our adults um, just to stay organized um, because they get dysregulated and anxious because they can't hold on to all of the ideas and all of the to-dos and all of the steps. So we create the list together um, and, and in doing so, um, we get more functional, which allows us to be able to then stretch a little bit. It gives us the bandwidth to stretch on other things. Um, Some of the things that I have done that have actually helped my praxis is simply playing with the kids I work with and playing with my own children. Um, So we do a balance of compensating and and developing capacity.
0: Now, Joanne, I did have a question about, um, you know, When people think of motor planning, I often think about, in terms of academics, kids who can't write their letters. So for instance, my son, who's now 14, his letters still look like a pre-kindergarten. They're messy. He doesn't write on a straight line. Sometimes he writes letters on top of each other as he's writing something, but he knows all the letters. He can write them all. He can read a little bit, um, but it's, it's very, very messy. How does that relate to Praxis?
1: So um, motor planning is complicated because it's not, um, we can't just do it with our eyes closed and our ears turned off and our sensory systems shut off, right? So it impacts um, that feedback piece, right? Where uh, if, when we think about um, motor planning and Praxis um, that feedback piece of, is this accurate? Right? Do I need to do it differently? Or am I just carrying out a straight motor plan without regard to whether it's working or not? So if you can't adapt your plan and you can't see that, oh, if I just continue to carry out this same motor plan, um, that it's not gonna work under these circumstances, then anytime the paper is a little bit different, the um the angle that you have your paper at is a little bit different. Anytime any component change um, happens, going from pencil to marker to crayon, any change, and you're not going to be able to accurately carry out that motor plan because you you've just learned this one thing in isolation.
0: How would you improve a child's writing who's writing mm-hmm. really messy like that? So
1: um, that's one of another one of those areas where we can't actually target writing at that point. Okay, What we have to target is targeting and getting good feedback, right? So that's a kid I might um, throw a ball back and forth, right? Um, and, and just start with a very simple game back and forth. Can the, can the child catch and throw, right? Can they see an object coming and adapt in that moment um, and get feedback on whether it worked? And if they are standing too far away or too much to the left, right, uh, change their, their plan. Um, I would start with um, simply putting color on paper um, for older clients that we have, you know, 14, 15 adolescents, where you know it's just not, um, we're not gonna do a coloring book or, or trying to color in the lines. We'll sometimes do um, some beautiful tape art with watercolors And so they still have a lovely end product, but the visual motor demand um, and the planning that's a part of that is limited, right? So we're just trying to accurately target a location with a pencil, right? Um, And to help get precision um, because what you're describing is a lack of, of precision due to not getting feedback from Praxis.
0: Interesting, okay. And would this be a similar type of process when children are unable to put on their own socks.
1: Absolutely, and just like with the capacities, right? If we say, oh, this kid really has constrictions at capacity four, so let's really work on capacities one, two, and three. Let's play in those capacities, it's the same thing. The child cannot put their socks on, especially a child who struggles with praxis, maybe you can get them to put one pair of socks on consistently because you just practice and practice and practice and practice. But as soon as they grow or their sock texture changes or something is a little bit different, it gets a little bit harder, right? They will always have to put right on first and then left. Everything has to be exactly the same because otherwise they can't do it. So um, for a child who can't put their socks on, we're gonna go further back, right? Can they target their foot accurately, right? Can they open um, the sock, right? Can they pinch and stretch and target? So we're gonna go backwards just to make sure that they have all of those components. The other thing in terms of, of helping children develop independent living skills and handwriting and all of these skills is we need enough capacity to have therapeutic wiggle room to work on them. Because if the child is going to get overly distressed by us saying, you know, if they don't have the praxis, they don't have the praxis, right? So we have to have enough therapeutic wiggle room that they have the tolerance to work on that strategy. So sometimes some of the things that I wait until the until we've got some good solid footing in capacities one through five. Um, I'll wait on handwriting and just do, um, visual motor activities, fine motor activities that don't involve a pencil and paper that are just based on the child's interests and affinities. We have this beautiful, um, box at the house or at the clinic feels like a house at the clinic, um, that one kid saw, we've gotten some equipment and we happen to have a really big box. He said, I'm going to make that into a house. And so the children have been drawing on it, painting on it cutting out windows, and that's a lovely opportunity, right? It's not a sit down and work on handwriting. It is, um, there's enough um, engagement, curiosity, um, especially if another child is actually doing the activity and another friend comes, right? That's where we get that interest and we can actually begin to work on those um, fine motor skills in a natural way. Um, But before a kid is ready to really sit and tolerate um getting it wrong, then it's it's just really tough to get any traction.
0: I'm so glad you said that because yes, it's very frustrating for my son. He can't stick his thumbs in and spread open the sock. So trying to do that, he gives up very easily and help, help, I need help. And so maybe um like doing all those other things will help, but how would you would you also work on the spreading With the thumbs, the sock as well in little pockets? I
1: would too is tolerance, right? So if he is particularly available, right? I mean, the the challenge there is not that he can't put the sock on, it's that he can't sit in the discomfort of not being able to put his sock on. Uh Aha. Right, so if we give him um, enough stability and enough capacity to sit in that discomfort, then he will sit and practice putting his sock on, right? He will tolerate us saying, let's try again. Because if he can't tolerate the let's try again, it's just gonna be frustrating. We're not gonna take away opportunities. I mean, I would still hand him the sock, right? And let him give it a go because you never know, right? Um, But I would also offer some, some help and support too. Right. So he gives it a go a couple of times and says, I can't do it. So then what I will do with kids is I'll just stretch and hold it, but they have to put their foot in. And then uh, they put their foot in, but I let go once it goes over their toes, you know, to the to the ankle and they've got to pull it up over the ankle. So giving just enough help to make the activity happen, but not doing the activity for them.
0: And if you think about it in school, whether children are neurodivergent or not, you can see the kids from our history of being in school who struggle with something and don't want to try because they don't like that feeling of failure and the embarrassment of not being able to do what their peers can do and things like that. So I I love that answer. Thank you for that. And I'll refer parents to my podcast with Keith Landair, an occupational therapist in Vancouver, when he talked about what parents see versus what they're working on. And so the goal is the same, but parents are like, why aren't you working on writing or academics? When he says, well, we're actually working on all the precursors to that. And you described that nicely. So thank you. Um, Another parent is asking about children who can't wipe their own bum. Oh, yes. That's so tricky because you can't see it.
1: Right. So really the the biggest challenge there is if you are relying on vision because your proprioception isn't good. Right. You you don't know where your where you begin and where you end, right? And you don't know where your bottom is in comparison to where you've placed your hand, it makes it so difficult. So sometimes having a mirror, right, that the child can compensate by using vision to see behind themselves and to wipe. Um, I am a big fan that until a kid is ready to try, you know, it, they, they make some really great um, toilet seat days that are not too terribly expensive. Right. And just cleans you right up. Right. Um, so at, using that as an adjunct as you practice consistency. Right. Um, but. A lot of times when I have kids who struggle to wipe their own bottoms, proprioception is is not available, and they compensate with it and these are kids who otherwise you know their handwriting is lovely and they're doing well otherwise, uh, but they they just don't know
0: where their body begins and ends and they might be able to get it back there, but then when they wipe it gets all over their fingers
1: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, and part of that is because they, again, with the proprioception and the tactile system too, right? If they can't tell what's happening, right? I I can close my eyes, reach into my pocketbook and I can figure out which coin I've picked up. I don't have that many coins now because I use mostly cards. But if I was looking for a coin, I can just with my fingers, it's, it's called stereognosis. I can just with my fingers figure out which one's gonna be the quarter right? And you need that capacity, that ability to know, okay, I can feel this. This makes sense. Here's where my body is. I know that I've got the toilet paper sufficiently wrapped around my hand, right? To to not touch the poo, right? So um, there's lots of ways to play around with that. Um, I will sometimes have kids who really struggle with that. I will wrap their hand almost like a glove with toilet paper. So no matter what, their hand is not going to get through on it. Right. And then once they're done, we put the poopy glove and just slide it off into the toilet. Right. Um, There are some kids who do really well with cold wipes. Right. So you just have some cold wipes um, because that coldness alerts that tactile system. So, you know, where your, um, where you're touching, you can actually really feel it. Um, So there's lots of compensatory strategies around that one, uh, but it's totally kid dependent and what your kid will tolerate. Um, So I think we really have to have our our most creative thinking caps on um, when it comes to toileting.
0: And I will refer parents to my podcast with Alicia Payaro in Vancouver, which was a podcast on toileting. And how does it overlap with executive function? Yeah, so it's the groundwork
1: for executive function, right? Okay. How am I gonna organize my day? Um, one of the things that I have always struggled a lot with is I have 10 things on my to-do list. My brain gives every single one, I've got an ADHD brain. My brain gives every single one of those items equal importance. So I love to use my my list um, I don't even have to keep the list. I just need to put something down on paper, look at it visually, and organize and prioritize, and and then I'm able to to move forward.
0: Okay, and I'm going to uh, put the link for floor time lifestyle interview podcast with Joanne and her mother, Millie Cordero, both occupational therapists. You'll have to hear Joanne's history in that. And it's a wonderful podcast. And thank you so much, Joanne. And thank you very much, everybody, for your questions. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential.